Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Fluoride is one of the most beneficial cavity prevention elements that we can use in order to assist our patients in preventing decay and gaining control if they are a high-risk cavity producer. Now, many patients benefit from daily use of brushing with fluoridated toothpaste and drinking community water that contains fluoride. The use of fluoride varnish in the dental operatory also comes in handy when treating our patients with a moderate to high caries risk. So how did we get here? How did we make this discovery? As a student, you will learn all about fluoride. You'll need to understand the history of how we discovered the oral health benefits of community water fluoridation, the use of fluoride supplements, and the benefits of fluoride treatments at dental visits. It's really important for you to develop a good foundation about fluoride because there are lots of questions on your board exams and there are even more questions asked by patients in the dental office about this topic. It would be impossible for me to cover all of this information in one short podcast. So for this topic, I've decided to break it up into sections. This episode will focus on the beginning, the history of community water fluoridation and how fluoride works to reduce decay rates. Are you looking for study sheets? I've created study sheets that cover the content of this episode. If you're interested or that's something that's going to help you on your learning journey, you can click the link listed right in the description of these show notes. Happy studying. Sometimes in order to really get an understanding of where we are, you have to look back at the historical perspective to see where we came from in order to arrive where we are. Understanding the history behind what we see as a public health success and community water fluoridation will go a long way for you to be able to not only advocate for community water fluoridation, but to answer questions and understand the perspective of some of our patients that we treat in the operatory. This history can be divided into four different phases. Phase one was the clinical discovery phase. Phase two, the epidemiological phase. Phase three, the demonstration phase. And phase four, the technology transfer phase. We're gonna talk about each one of these phases of the historical perspective. Now phase one, the clinical discovery phase occurred between just the turn of the century, 1901 to about 1933. And in this phase, dentist Frederick McKay, Dr. McKay, began a study to develop an understanding of what was the cause behind modeling of teeth. Now, Dr. McKay, he was an East Coast dentist that moved to Colorado Springs. And he started noticing that a lot of the patients he was seeing had brown colorations of their enamel and they had a lot of pitting. And so he labeled this as modeling of teeth. This actually became known as Colorado brown stain. And Dr. McKay was in a pursuit of knowledge to try and understand 
What was behind this Colorado brown stain? This clinical presentation seemed to be rampant and also not something he had routinely seen on the East Coast. So he created a study, and in this study, Dr. McKay noted modeling. Through investigation, researchers and other clinicians started helping Dr. McKay, and they were able to connect demographics to the clinical presentation that the modeling was naturally occurring and environmental factors were contributing to this enamel presentation. Now, this hypothesis became that individuals with fluorosis had fewer cavities. So Dr. McKay made a link between this Colorado brown stain in a reduction in tooth decay. And so they determined, the hypothesis was determined that it was likely due to water or diet from whatever was going on in that region of the country. Dr. McKay worked with G.V. Black and H.V. Churchill in the end of phase one. So H.V. Churchill was working as a chemist and he creates an identification of fluoride in the drinking water and calculates the concentrations in Colorado to be up to about 14 parts per million in some areas. And at that point, a means of analyzing quantities of fluoride in water was developed. So by the 1930s, H.T. Dean, the head of the National Institute of Health, was the first to investigate the epidemiology of fluorosis. So you have Dr. McKay who creates this link between demographics and the Colorado brown stain and the reduction of decay. And then other people join him and they start to make more connections and start understanding, okay, this is coming from fluoride. Now let's measure the concentration of fluoride and see if we can't figure out what the ideal concentration is. But first we have to be able to measure it. So you can see that this whole discovery and pursuit of knowledge phase took some time. By the end of phase one, you had a link between the clinical presentation of that brown stain, the modeling and the pitting, and a determination that it was caused by fluoride in the water or excessive fluoride in the water. And so it was determined to be known as fluorosis. This brings us to phase two, the epidemiology phase. Now, Wikipedia defines epidemiology as the study and analysis of the distribution patterns and determinants of health and disease conditions in defined populations. And epidemiology is really the cornerstone of public health, and it helps to shape decisions and evidence-based practice by identifying risk factors for disease and targets for preventive health. Now, H.T. Dean, who was the head of the National Institute for Health, was the first to investigate the epidemiology of fluorosis. Phase two went from about 1933 to 1945, when dental caries became a bigger concern or focus as a public health issue. Dr. Dean conducted research and epidemiological studies in order to determine the prevalence of this fluorosis on a national scale. His studies were able to demonstrate a relationship between modeled enamel, dental caries rates, and water fluoridation. Dr. Dean created a dental index associated with the severity of fluorosis in populations called the Dean's Index. 
In the Dean's Index, he scored fluorosis based on severity, zero being normal with a clinical presentation of smooth, bright, pale, creamy, white, translucent surfaces, or no signs of discoloration or any fluorosis. So middle of the road would be three, and that would be considered mild, opaque white areas covering less than 50% of the tooth surface. Now five would be considered very severe. All the surfaces are affected. It's discrete or convoluted holes with brown stain present. The development of the Dean's Index allowed for comparisons of fluorosis in a calibrated way to collect the data, allowing for a significant understanding and development of the connection between fluoride concentrations, caries risk, and fluorosis. In Dr. Dean's study, he would calculate the level of severity of fluorosis in patients, and they were scored. They did decayed, missing, and filled teeth, the DMFT index, and the water samples were collected so that they could determine the connection between these three conditions. In this multiple state study, areas with no fluoride, some fluoride, and high fluoride were compared. And this really helped show a direct link between concentrations of fluoride in the water and decay rates, as well as the level or severity of fluorosis present. The 21 city study documented that the prevalence of dental decay dropped sharply as fluoride concentrations rose to about one part per million and then leveled off. So after one part per million, they did not see an additional decrease in decay rates. So this brings us to phase three. And phase three occurred between about 1945 and 1954. Now that we've been in the pursuit of knowledge for a couple of decades, and we've developed an understanding that there is a link between fluoride concentrations, fluorosis, and decay rates, now we're on the demonstration phase. So phase three is all about demonstrating and supporting the evidence that's been collected showing that the research is accurate and really demonstrating what's going on with all three of these things and how they're interrelated. So Dean conducted a four-pair city study where he took four cities that had one part per million of fluoride and the control group and then he compared it to four cities with no fluoride or below 0.7 parts per million of fluoride and his findings supported what they discovered, and that was that the lower levels or no fluoride cities had higher DMFT scores, decayed, missing, filled teeth scores. And cities with one part per million had lower DMFT scores and very little or no fluorosis present. Now the goal of Dean's research was really to determine the lowest level of fluoride that would be needed in order to inhibit the caries risk and at the same time prevent fluorosis. Now, in January 1945, Grand Rapids, Michigan, right, this is their claim to fame and in the dental world, Grand Rapids, Michigan was the first city to actually go in and adjust their fluoride levels in the water in an effort to promote dental health and reduce tooth decay and use the research to make that determination. Dean's research used randomized controlled trials and cross-sectional surveys to include a 50 to 70% caries reduction in the cities with community water fluoridation. Now let that settle in just a little bit. 
The conclusion of Dean's 15-year clinical trials showed that fluoride provides benefits regardless of your social economic status, and it's a passive vehicle to both individuals and community members. It provides a safe and effective, sustainable and cost-effective benefit to dental health long-term. It reduces the caries, controls the incidence of fluorosis at one part per million or lower, and this became the benchmark for community water fluoridation. Phase four is known as the technology transfer phase, right? So now we've developed this understanding and we've got all this evidence to support our efforts. And now it's about taking what we know and transferring it into a public health initiative. And this phase brings us from about the 1950s to present day. The ADA strongly supported, recommended, and encouraged community water fluoridation once this evidence was shared and we could see that strong correlation and the benefit to the community. And by the mid-1950s, the ADA endorsed the first fluoridated toothpaste and the implementation of community water fluoridation began across the United States. Now, current optimal levels of fluoride is 0.7 parts per million. And we know the research tells us that widespread community water fluoridation prevents cavities, even in communities that are not fluoridated. We call this the halo effect. People are going into the communities where there is water fluoridation and they're eating the food, they're digesting the beverages that are processed from fluoridated water in those communities. So even though they're not benefiting from community water fluoridation in their specific area or maybe where they live, the halo effect is still affecting these patients. Now keep in mind when you have water that contains fluoride, we're not requiring our patients to remember to take a daily dose or to definitely use uh, toothpaste that contains fluoride. So it's just a passive uh, implementation where it's not something that patients have to think about. So the impact of having fluoride in the water is significant. It's important to keep in mind that there are some who oppose fluoride in the community water system and feel as though it is a violation of their individual rights and choice, that there is a risk for some health conditions, and also believe that it's connected to some adverse health conditions. So it's important for you to consider the perspective of individuals when you are thinking about how you're going to advocate for community water fluoridation. There is some research out there that shows fluoride to be toxic when it is consumed in large amounts, just like vitamin A, D, iodine, all kinds of things can be toxic when they are not ingested at the correct amount. So keep that in mind. I just wanted to mention that to you you will have these conversations with your patients and you will have these conversations with members of your community and you will see legislation in some states and some areas that try to remove fluoride that's already been successfully added to community water systems so it's important for you as a dental health professional to understand the historical perspective of where we've come from 
and why it's so important for you to advocate for fluoride to either be put into the community water systems in your area or to advocate to keep fluoride in your community water systems. Sometimes it's important to have those conversations with people that maybe have a different belief system or perspective and to really help bring them to the table of understanding that water fluoridation is a public health success for dental health. Thanks for listening today. I hope this episode was able to provide you with some insight on how much effort and how it was a national effort to bring understanding to the benefits, the discovery of fluoride, the benefits of fluoride, and the implementation of community water fluoridation. Join me in the next episode where we're actually going to be discussing fluoride itself and how does it work to strengthen the teeth? And what are the topical benefits? What are the systemic benefits? Like I said, there's so much more to know about fluoride that can't be covered in just one podcast. I hope you join me. I would invite you to ask any questions at all that you need answered. Sometimes questions come up when you're listening to this podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast.